Well, we are thankful to have here with us today Tim Vink, who is the Director of Spiritual Leadership and Outreach in our new denomination, the Alliance of Reformed Churches. So, Tim, thank you for being here with us today, and uh, we look forward to what God has placed on your heart to share with us. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Kathy. It's good to be with you again. I remember pretty distinctly the last time I was with you discussing the Alliance. Uh, it was the week after my father's funeral, right? So I was sitting over there, and, you know, it's powerful to be in worship with you then. And, uh, yeah, it's good to be with you here today. I live in Zeeland, Michigan, and uh, delighted to take a couple-hour drive up this morning and beautiful time of prayer and God's creation. So you're a special church. You're one of these early leadership churches that have come into the Alliance. There's about 70 of you already and another, you know, about 160 on the way. They have to go through the steps with discernment and decisions and classes, release dates, and so on. But uh, we're working with about 250 churches right now overall that are in the conversation and uh, a few hundred leaders, pastors, and others that are coming as well. They come separately, come transferring into the Alliance. So it's a big, uh, big transition. We are the Alliance of Reformed Churches. That's our legal name. We often are Instead of using the word ARC, we're using the word Alliance a lot more because there is another denomination that likes to use the acronym ARC, the Association of Related Churches. Hey, we knew that from the beginning, but if you want to use the words Alliance, we are allies of Christ and kingdom, full name, Alliance of Reformed Churches, but uh, encourage you to enjoy the journey that we're on together. So I want to, I want to pray for you as a congregation. I feel like it's best that we... Uh, go vertical and let the Lord welcome you into his movement, his gospel movement. It's possible that Jesus could have started a settlement down near the Dead Sea or by the Jordan River where John was baptizing and Jesus was baptizing even more. It's possible he could have started a settlement, but he actually started a movement. In Jerusalem, they gathered month after month with feast days. They all came. Millions of people would come. Tens of thousands into Jerusalem and fill the place, but Jesus started a movement to go make disciples of all nations. And so the Alliance wants to encourage you in that direction. I'm going to preach in that direction today, a disciple-making focus of the Great Commission with a multiplication mindset. We're going to try to know Christ better today in the way he thinks about how he made the universe is how he's redeeming the universe. So it's going to be a little stretching, I'm sure in some ways, but I want you to look to Jesus. He's the, this is a Christ-facing movement of churches, right? The alliance, our allies of Christ and his kingdom, friends and partners together, seeking first the kingdom of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. So um, they never forgot Jesus in the first century church. They never forgot who they were following. Jesus had brought innovation and revelation of the Father's heart, and it changed them every day from then on. So we want our churches, our local churches, at the front lines of ministry. We're here to empower you and strengthen you. We want you following Christ, Christ alone as the head and leader of your church, Scripture alone as your authoritative guide. Scripture is authoritative from God. It is sufficient for guiding your church in the next decades. It is clear. It is able to be understood by the power of the Holy Spirit by even children in our churches. And so we want to trust Christ alone, Scripture alone. You're part of God's movement, a 21st century movement of the gospel globally that 
draws on the patterns and the design of the first century movement that Jesus started. He's still the founder of his own movement and the leader of that movement. So I want to pray you into that as we walk together today. So Lord Jesus, I bless and welcome Rehoboth Reformed Church in the name that is above every other name. I bless them that they would have an encounter with you, Christ, continually, that they would experience your power, your, your joy, your leadership, your favor, your unity, that they would experience your, your leadership in their midst, that they would walk with you in the power of the Holy Spirit, stay in step with the Spirit, that they would be strengthened by grace in the alliance, that they would follow you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, I pray a blessing upon them, that they would experience uh, the favor of God in making disciples who make disciples who make disciples to the third and fourth generation. I pray that you would shift us from just increasing seeding capacity to increasing our sending capacity, the ability to send generations of disciples who make disciples into every sphere of human life and society under your authority. You're the ascended Lord. You have all authority in heaven and on earth. And so there's no, no realm of human life that is not a place where you would intersect with your humanity, your creation that you're trying to redeem. And so, Lord, I pray you strengthen each and every one of your people, that they would experience a life of grace, a life of power in the Holy Spirit, that they would be enveloped in your love that your exponential love, the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of God, your superpower would become their superpower. And nothing would be able to prevail against that. Nothing would be able to separate them from your love. They would experience the power and the love, stacks of it, love and power, power and love through the Holy Spirit that would transform their lives individually and corporately as a missionary base of the gospel here in northern Michigan. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Welcome to the Alliance of Reformed Churches. It's going to be an adventure together. You can see I titled our message today, Higher Thoughts and Higher Ways of Jesus. And I'm pretty sure there will be some stretch in there. You know, the scripture says, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He's our He's our higher rock. He's our creator. If there's anyone worth worshiping, then he's greater than us, right, by definition. And so that's not surprising that his ways would be like, wow, that's different. You know, that's a lot. And uh, I just want you to prepare yourself to say, hmm, I follow him. One of his most basic commands at the beginning, the end of the Gospels, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they heard it personally Follow me, follow me. You don't have to lead him. That would be probably impossible, but you do have to follow him. Follow me, Jesus says. That's your call. That's your uh, unique relationship. The closeness of that intimate followership of Jesus makes for the greatest leadership change on the planet. So there's going to be some higher ways and higher thoughts of Jesus that get out in front of us and help pull us into a new future a new dynamic together. So you and I live in Michigan. This uh, state has been shaped pretty dramatically by the influence of a particular person. And uh, I'll share his name with you in just a moment, see if you can come up with it. 
1908, does that ring a bell? How about transportation industry? Who would I be thinking of? A significant figure in the life of the Michigan State? Henry Ford, nicely done. Yes, we were talking about the Model T being introduced for mass distribution to the nation. Henry Ford was an inventor. He was a thinker. He was a dreamer. He was a visionary. He was a designer. He'd be a fascinating person to sit down with because he actually had some really new ideas, not just about automobiles that he did. The automobile had been invented before, but it was a luxury for the elite, and it was going to stay that way if it was anything to do with the other companies. Henry Ford's vision was an automobile in every household for every one of you, that life would be changed, that everyone would have mass transportation with this new horseless carriage, and the Model T was invented for a ripe price of $825. Now you know a little bit about inflation, so how much do you think that is in today's dollars? About 25 grand. It started there. After 10 years of innovation with the 40-hour work week, the assembly line innovation, uh, mass, you know, industrial um, strategies here in, in the Detroit area, he got the price down to $360. So that's about $10,000 a car. And by about 10 years into the Model T, from 1908 to 1918, half of the cars in America were the black Model T and everybody had automobiles and were learning to drive. Henry Ford changed the world. I mean, not only did he introduce franchises on six continents, but the entire highway system that you know, like the interstate, it used to take 30 days to go from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco on the Lincoln Highway. Now it takes like three days with automobiles on the interstate system. President Eisenhower in the 1950s created that because Henry Ford had seen a world with blacktop and, and paved roads all over the nation, you know, and he thought all of you would be driving his car if he could make it available to you. So what a what a shift in the entire world. Probably all of us showed up today in an automobile. Henry Ford is influencing our life. He was a thinker, a designer. He also invented tractors and trucks and airplanes. And uh, you know, they sold 15 million of the you know, Model T and went on to other kinds of cars. There's a, a long history there all through World War I and World War II. He owned 161 patents, but he had this global vision of transportation being changed for every human being, and we are still feeling the effects of that. So wouldn't it be fascinating to sit down with a thinker, a visionary like that? I mean, he was a little cantankerous. He had some weaknesses in his life too, but you know someone even greater than Henry Ford, right? We're gonna preach the gospel. Who's the greatest designer? Who's the greatest inventor? The most creative innovator? Yeah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, right? So we see with Henry Ford that ideas have consequences. Let me go to the next page here, see if I can make this work. Where do you think I'm supposed to point this? There we go. Henry Ford, Model T car, 1908. Ideas have consequences, right? Jesus thought that all of you could become a new creation in Christ, not only born out of an intelligent design of the first creation, but your second creation would be even more 
powerfully aligned with heaven on earth. And so the old is gone, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Ideas have consequences, we see from Henry Ford and automobiles, but how much more from Jesus Christ? The idea that people can become new creations and participate in both the first and second creation design under this master inventor. So who is this Jesus, right? He's the creator and designer of all that we know. We need to remind ourselves sometimes that the entire universe 300 sextillion stars. You know, that's like a three with 23 zeros behind it. You can't even fathom the number in the universe, right? It's the way that he made your eyeballs to work. You know, it's astonishing, just the human body. Jesus is the creator and designer of all we know in the universe, quantum physics. His ways are higher than our ways. We're just catching up and learning about some of these things now. There's a lot we don't know about a universe he made. How much more does he have to know about it to make it, to design it? He's way, way ahead of us, and that's all right. You're invited to follow him. So I want to share three scriptures just to remind you about the leadership of Jesus in the creation of all things. First creation, second creation. In John chapter 1, it says in verse 3, through Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. A declaration of truth in the gospel. Verse 10 of John 1 says, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Can you imagine that? I mean, have any of you driven a car and not thanked Henry Ford for his vision? It's possible, right, to forget the designer and the inventor of these things, right? It's possible to have a world full of people made by God, uniquely powerful masterpieces, one-of-a-kind people, and forget who their designer is, get disconnected from their creator, and go off making themselves little gods, making up the rules as they go crashing and bumping into things in the dark. Another verse in Scripture from Hebrews chapter 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers. Love the worship, by the way, worship team. Beautifully done. The richness of our rootedness and the absolute relevance of our contemporary moment to intersect with the nations in history right now. It's both and. The genius of both and. Rooted and relevant. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through whom he made the universe. Through Jesus, God made the universe, right? And Colossians 1 practically turns it into a hymn of glory and it begins this way in Colossians 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes visible the invisible God to you. Jesus makes God known to you. He reveals the Father best. And he's the firstborn over all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, for Jesus. 
Oh, fascinating to sit down with the inventor, the designer of all things, to have intimate, prayerful, listening prayer, communion with him. You're invited into 21 days with the inventor of everything you've known, the entire universe. Learn from him. Enjoy him. What an interview you have every day at the throne of grace. You should be thrilled to read his word, hear from him by the power of his spirit in prayer, revelation. He has greater ways, higher thoughts for all of us. Ideas have consequences, and Jesus is a big idea person. We go back to the beginning. In Genesis 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1 and 4, you'll see that there's an account of how everything in the heavens and the earth has been created by God, an account, a revelation of that. And so God makes all the living things. He works in the first three days of creation. He creates separation between light and darkness and the water above and the water below. And then third day, he creates separation of dry land from the waters. And then he comes back on days four, five, and six. This is creation design, God's intelligent design. He comes back and starts filling the day and night, sun, moon, and stars. He comes back on day five and fills the water above and the water below with birds and fish. And, you know, it's, it's a powerful picture. And, and plants are growing on the earth. And then dry land, humans, animals, plants, he commands them to multiply. The account of the origin of the heavens and the earth is phenomenal. You get let in on that, like none of you were there, but God was, and God reveals how he made everything, and it's important because the one who created all things saw the world go into sin, tempted to rebel against God, against the creator, through doubting him, did God really say, the ancient serpent whispered in the ear of the first human beings, Adam and Eve, did God really say, creates doubt, and they disobey a direct command of God, don't eat the fruit of this tree. And they find themselves plunged into misery and all their descendants after them. And the gospel is about Jesus Christ redeeming everything he made, everything he designed good. After it's been broken, he still has a heart for it. He has a heart for you and I, born broken in original sin, a state of being, but redeeming us and bringing us back to himself. So, Jesus is now redeeming everything he's created. He was the one who created all things. Do you think there's a possibility he's redeeming in a similar way to how he created it originally? Do you think there could be a link? Would you interview him? Would you sit down with Jesus and learn from him? Learn his higher ways, his higher thoughts? Because I'm convinced from Scripture Jesus is doing exactly that. And one piece of it I want to talk to you about is Jesus installed a multiplication operating system in the first creation. A multiplication mindset, not addition, not subtraction, not division, a multiplication, exponential growth through generations. He commanded the plants, animals, and people to be fruitful and multiply. So I want you to think about this. The first human being, Adam and Eve, the mother of all the living, lived for 940 years, the scripture says, Adam did. Pre-fall, things were different before the flood, lived 940 years. And in Genesis 5, there's a table of generations that's laid out. You can read it and study it. It goes from Adam all the way through his descendants. He lived to see his ninth generation. 
at 940 years. You know how many descendants he had? How many birthday cards Adam would have had to send to his descendants? Roughly 500,000, like a half a million. That was the original design. That, that was God and the first humans, your ancestors, faith of your forefathers way at the beginning, exponential design was built into the first creation. Be fruitful and multiply generationally. One generation produces the next generation, the next generation. It says there were multiple children. It wasn't just Cain, Abel, and Seth, but they had many more sons and daughters. If you just went with a rough number of like five or six other kids to the eighth and ninth generation, you do the math on that, it gets massive. Half a million people. Do you think Jesus might think that way? Because he started things that way. And if he had to fix things, redeem things, restore things, is it possible that he would have a multiplication mindset for the second creation, the new creation for the church? Is it possible that when he talks about the Great Commission, it is absolutely a multiplication mindset that he's talking out of as the designer and inventor of all things? So there's lots of parallels with the first creation and the second creation work of Jesus. I think the whole gospel, if we could understand the origin story better, the design of God, even how he does forming and then filling or separation on the first three days and then saturation on the next three days, I think you would find out something about the completeness of the gospel in the six days of new creation work that he's doing, the six major pivot points of history in the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, the ascension of Jesus, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, and the, four, and the second coming of Jesus. These six day, days of new creation work, of redemption work from the first creation. It's an astonishing parallel through the scriptures. There's a lot more digging to do than we can do on a Sunday morning about that, but I just want to give you a clue, and it would help you hold on to the fullness of the gospel better if you understood six days of new creation work that he's doing. You'd understand the difference of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, how all of these are essential, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, second coming. You'd understand how forming and filling or separation work and then saturation work is ongoing. It would be instructive for us as a church. There's more, more for us to learn in the higher ways and the higher thoughts of Jesus. Let me touch down in one passage for a moment. We'll touch down right here and just say, in Matthew 9, 35 to 38, Jesus sees a problem. Jesus sees the problem that you could see today. You can see crowds of people through modern media who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Seen any of them lately, anywhere in your nation? Crowds of people, far from God, disconnected from their creator, don't know who made them, why they're made, what their purpose is, don't know the creator, they don't know his redemption work, harassed and helpless. When Jesus saw that problem in his generation, he said the need is multiplying. The plants, animals, and people are doing what I commanded them to do from the beginning, which was to be fruitful and multiply generationally. And now we have exponential need, crowds, thousands of people. What are we going to do about that? You know what he did about that? He says, ask the Lord of the harvest 
for workers for his harvest field. And they prayed to the Lord of harvest, and they got sent six pairs. The key word in Matthew 10, there's no chapter divisions in Matthew, flows right into the key word is and. He sends Peter and John. I mean, Peter and Andrew, his brothers, James and John, six pairs, gets sent out to multiply the salvation work of Jesus. So one leader in the fullness of the Spirit now multiplies himself into six pairs, right? In Matthew 10, that's a significant strategy shift. When the crowds are multiplying, when the need is multiplying, and Jesus echoes creation language right there. In Matthew 9, he uses two analogies, one about animals and one about plants, to talk about people that are needing salvation. And he builds a multiplication system, a rapid exponential growth of the kingdom strategy to answer the need. You can't have an addition strategy in the kingdom when the need is multiplying. You'll never catch up. You'll create a secular culture, a dying American culture. If the church is working out of an addition mindset or worse, subtraction and division when God wants you to work out of a multiplication because they're still obeying his first command in creation and they're multiplying. The need is multiplying. So Jesus says, I have compassion on them. They're like a sheep without a shepherd. That's an animal kingdom problem. They were shepherds in Israel. They understood this well. Jerusalem's not far from Bethlehem where all the sheep and lambs of the sacrificial system were brought every year. They understood shepherding. David was a shepherd. They had deep history in this. What do you know about a sheep in Israel? Been there, kind of rugged terrain, a little dusty, deserty. What do you know about a sheep in Israel without a shepherd? About three days and it's dead, right? Predators, dehydration, Sheep don't know how to stay alive without a shepherd. Jesus was saying, there's urgency. My guts are killing me. I have urgency. We got to get salvation and redemption to these people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. It's urgent that you go to them. They cannot live apart from me. I made them. I made them for me. I'm their proper environment, right? Like when God created the trees, he spoke to the land to produce vegetation. When God created the fish, he spoke to the water. So the, you know, the water without fish is still water, but a fish without water is nothing. A tree without soil is nothing. When God wanted to make you, he spoke to himself. Let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. And then... Man without God, let's say it this way, God without man is still God, right? But people without God are nothing. You're made for the environment as much as a tree is for soil, a fish is for water. People are made for God and people outside of God that have reproduced and multiplied in the first creation command but have not come to the gospel redeemer, the maker of all things, the savior of the world, have not come to Christ. They're in desperate chance of dying. And Jesus has compassion on them in his guts and he wants something done about it. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. That's another metaphor plant harvest metaphor, right? You get this up here in McBain. In Israel, a little more dire situation, although we kind of feel it. 
today in a modern world. Ukraine's under warfare, it's a major grain producing place in Europe and on and on. We have turbulence and supply chains and all that. You get it. Israel would have got this a little differently. What is a, what is a society without a harvest in about three months? Hungry, dying, malnourished. They didn't have all the supply chains we do now to protect you, the backfill, if your harvest goes down. So when Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, telling that to his disciples, he's saying, so that we send out harvesters now into this great needy harvest field, he's saying something to you. What are churches that don't harvest when it's time to harvest? which every day is the day of salvation in the Lord, right? What's your church in three years, 30 years, if you don't harvest? You're dead. And we close about 7,000 churches in America today, a year, in a sea of dying and lost people. They don't harvest. So whether your motivation is their need, that they might die in their sins, or your need as a church, whatever motivates you, both and could motivate you, don't forget the creator, his higher ways and higher thoughts are go and make disciples of the nations. And he sends the first six pairs. And that's part of the strategy. It's exponential. Jesus multiplies himself into six pairs, 12 leaders. He sends them to do what he was doing, preach the gospel, heal the sick, drive out demons, cleanse the leper, raise the dead. And they do it in alignment with his authority. The Great Commission is a multiplication idea. Yeah, we got uh, in Matthew 10, the six pairs. In Luke 10, six pairs, each have six pairs. Now, by the end of Jesus' ministry, the six pairs have six other pairs, 72 other multiplying disciples. I mean, Jesus ministered to the multitudes, but he relied on the multipliers to do a worldwide mission. He administered to anybody, but he needed multipliers. So he set that in motion in Matthew 10 with the first six. And by Luke 10, or Matthew 10 is about toward the end of his first year of ministry. Luke 10 is about three months or so before the cross. It's the end of his ministry. They're, they're sent to Jerusalem and Judea in the year of opposition while they are looking for Jesus to kill him. Imagine that assignment the six other pairs. But if you're a disciple of Jesus and he creates six pairs, then you do what your master does. That's what disciples do. They do what their master does. Why did Peter walk on water? He was a fisherman. He knew that lake. He knew that lake really well. He knew that for generations, nobody had walked on water on the Lake of Galilee. But he sees his master one day walking on water and he gets out of the boat and says, today I walk on water. That's a higher way. That's a higher thought. That's what disciples do. They do what their master's doing, even when it's extraordinarily beyond their normal human ability. They're with him. They're with God. So the six pairs have six pairs, and they're fully formed and sent out. We see the fruition of that multiplication model of disciple-making. The second generation now is ready to go, and they're sent three months or so before the crucifixion of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. So 
And those are significant leaders. They show up in Acts 1. They're part of the pool from which the replacement apostle comes from. They're recognized in 1 Corinthians 15 as other apostles. You have the 11 that saw the appearance of Jesus, and then you saw other apostles. That's the 72 in motion here. So I, we need to see the multiplication mindset of Jesus again. Every new creation person in Christ needs to see the design of his first and second creation. He's redeeming everything he made and he's using similar strategies. The church has to begin to think, how do I reproduce spiritual descendants, children, a family tree in Christ to the third and fourth and fifth generation? Many of you would have pictures of your grandchildren. I have six, right? They're close to my heart. They're all over my phone. You know, you would have pictures of your children and grandchildren, and right you should, because you're doing the first creation work, but even more so, those children and grandchildren need to be redeemed, need to be born again from above, and need to be found in Christ and part of his whole redemption, not just found in creation, but in redemption in Christ. And you would want to have a spiritual family tree that's as important to you and is on your computer and on your iPhones and Androids just as much. How's your spiritual descendant, your family tree going? In Acts 2, we see the fruition again of this multiplication mindset. When the Spirit of God comes in power greatest prophecy of the greatest prophet of John that I baptize with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, on that day, when that fulfillment comes, this is saturation work, day five of new creation work. It's important. On Pentecost, the church grows 25x in one day, 120 in the upper room, saturated by the Holy Spirit. The church grows with 3,000 new believers that get baptized in water and baptized in the Holy Spirit on the same day. That's a powerhouse move from heaven. This is Jesus' strategy working itself out. Say, wait, in Jerusalem, till you get filled with power from an eye. Then you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. He's working a strategy, a global strategy from the inside out, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The church grows to 3,000, but that's not it, right? They go house to house. They get trained by the disciples, house to house. Yes, in the temple courts, but they couldn't stay near the temple courts. They had to go back to their 18 nations they had come from on that Pentecost feast day. So they went back home, trained by the house churches to do what? Start about 1,500 house churches in 18 nations. So probably within a month, Spirit-empowered, passionate believers in Jesus maybe had 10 people each in those house churches among their friends and relatives that they were telling about the Messiah and the gospel. That's 15,000 people in a month. This is the strategy of your maker, your redeemer, this Jesus. He thinks exponentially. He thinks you can go from here in McBain to the ends of the earth and see tens of thousands of people come to Christ. He has a bigger idea. He will make it possible for churches like you. You're more than 120. Look what he did with the first group. What could he do with you? It's astonishing. The Great Commission is a multiplication idea for the salvation of all nations. We've got about 8 billion on the planet. At least 4 to 5 billion of those need the gospel yet in this generation while they still have breath in their lungs. And you're on the planet with them, with the cure. 
the cure for their terminal illness of sin that they were born with, a terminal illness that will surely sweep them away in death one way or another, you hold the cure. You're the blood transfusion for the world. What are you doing? Urgency. Have compassion on them. They're sheep without a shepherd. There's a harvest waiting to come in. The Great Commission has great content, by the way. He didn't leave you wondering how to do it. Gives you the why, but he also gives you the how. He says after you reach them with his love and baptize them and they're part of your family, then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. The Great Commission has great content. What did Jesus command those people who heard him say that? Shortly before the ascension, it was in Galilee, not the final departure, but it was the Great Commission given on a mountain in Galilee. The Great Commission has great content. Teach them to obey. There are about 50 commands that Jesus had taught them to obey and the power of the Spirit with the help and in context at the speed of life. They're in the red letters of your New Testament Bibles. Do you know the 50 commands of Christ? Are you practicing them? Are you teaching people to obey what he commanded you to the third and fourth generation? Sure, your children and grandchildren, but what about people in the marketplace, people in your neighborhood? Do you have a spiritual family tree that's as precious to you as anything else in life? Is it expanding exponentially? Do you know that one of you could reach a million? You know how? 20 years, discipling one person each year. Take one person and teach them the 50 commands of Christ over the next 50 weeks of a year. And then they do it with someone else the next year. And they do it with others and others. You know what? You do 20 in 20 years, 20 people. And they keep doing it as well. It's simple. It's in the red letters. You got, I got a Bible. They have Jesus. They learn his commands in context. You know what? You know how many disciples your family tree would have in 20 years? Over a million. Is it safe to say the American church is not practicing the multiplication mindset of Jesus, not following his great commission strategy? We'd have millions of new Christians around us. You know that the average disciple-making reproduction rate of an American church, Reformed Church in America prior, even our new inherited alliance churches were starting here, most of them. It's about 1% discipleship, disciple-making reproduction rate. One, two, three, five percent. Many of our church plants see 50, 70%, but a lot of our established churches, it's settled. Settlement, way more than movement. But Jesus started a movement. So you have more potential than a church start, but they can grow more rapidly. In many cases, that's what I did the last 17 years, right? Church planting, hundreds and hundreds of new churches. I've seen the Lord do it exponentially more than we've ever done before in our history. The Reformed Church, right? One of the lessons of COVID is to change our focus from seeding capacity to sending capacity. Get after the disciple-making strategy of God, not just your gathering ability, but your scattering ability. Can you make disciples of all the nations? Life on life, without a church building, without a pastor on a Sunday, without a worship team, can you make disciples who make disciples who make disciples? That's one of the lessons of COVID globally for the church. 
So disciple-making reproduction rate of 1% or so is a little low. Can't find churches in the New Testament that had that low of a rate, right? Probably even Laodicea that was lukewarm was probably still running way beyond that. So that's basically if you have 100 people in worship and one person comes to Christ from the kingdom of darkness, gets rescued from their peril, sheep without a shepherd peril, one person per year per 100 of you in worship, that's a 1% reproduction rate. If two people, it'd be a 2%. If 50 people came to Christ with 100 of you, at least every other one of you brought someone into the kingdom that year, made a disciple of Jesus that year, you'd have a 50% reproduction rate. There's potential in the New Testament. I just show, you know, showed it to you in Acts of 100, 1,000, 10,000 reproduction rates. It's, it's on the earth today, by the way. Southern Hemisphere is experiencing this kind of explosive growth with persecution. Take Northern India, 2020, during COVID, 100,000 families came to Christ through one ministry. 100,000 families, not individuals. That's part of our problem. We think individuals, think families, lead whole families to Jesus, and you'll multiply three, four, five times faster than leading them one by one. So whole families, 100,000 families came to Christ in 2020 in one ministry, Northern India, among Hindus and Muslims where persecution is rampant. One ministry. What's that disciple-making reproduction rate? Astonishing. Jesus, your Jesus that we worshiped together earlier, your Jesus is doing that on your planet today. You live in the greatest revival of human history. It's still largely in the Southern Hemisphere where there's great persecution and they're up against godless world religions. How about now? in the Northern Hemisphere, in the US, Canada, Europe, and Russia, the very nations that are at war, NATO and Russia over Ukraine, was the strongest spiritual nation of Europe. It's interesting what God is doing in our time, scattering nine million saints out of Ukraine into every other nation, including Russia. God's up to stuff. He has a plan. He has a strategy. He has thoughts about how to redeem everything that he's made. He wants to bring you back. Satan also has a plan. There's a globalist, satanic agenda that you can see out in the open now in your country as well as others. It's a global struggle. Satan said to Jesus way back in the beginning, 2,000 years ago, listen, I'll give you all the nations. I have control of them now. I'll give them all to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Jesus says, quotes scripture, stands on the word of God and says, no, worship God only. You're not God. I don't bow down to you for a second. Follow him. Follow Jesus. But you'll be in a clash of kingdoms, a spiritual battle like you've, you know, it's escalating. It's getting bigger and more out in the open and persecution is coming to a northern hemisphere near you. Satan said to Jesus, I'll give you all the nations if you bow down and worship me. But Jesus said to us, you go. My strategy is you. You will hear me. You will listen to me. You will believe me. You will respond to my love and then love others like you've been loved to life. You will do it to the next generations. I believe in you. Go and make disciples of all nations. You're the strategy of, of Jesus that overcomes the strategy of hell 
to disciple the nations into darkness, death, destruction, demonic ideas everywhere. You are the strategy of heaven from Jesus to overturn the kingdom of darkness. Every new creation in Christ, you born-again people, every new creation in Christ must receive the multiplication mindset of Jesus because of the first creation which he made and the second creation design. Let me pray for you. Lord, your people, they are priceless. They are precious. They are powerful. Though sometimes we don't know the fullness of the gospel, gospel in our own lives yet. We need more help if we're struggling <laughs> to be witnesses across the table of the gospel of the kingdom, the message of heaven. <laughs> if we're struggling <laughs> to be witnesses of you in word and deed across the block, across the street, across the hallway in our schools and workplaces, Lord, I would ask for more power from your Holy Spirit that your church would wait upon you and wait for the Holy Spirit who will make them powerful witnesses of you in word and deed. May they be strengthened by you. You have a strategy. You have a full plan in the gospel to empower your church to be exponentially multiplying disciples. I pray that the power to witness of Rehoboth Reformed Church would go exponential in the coming years because of you, Jesus, because of your word, your mindset, your design, and your powerful Holy Spirit resting upon them. Come, Holy Spirit, bring the fulfillment of the ages among us. Let us be the evidence of what your grace can do in a generation struggling to find themselves in you. Pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.